Good evening and welcome to Young News Podcast Interview Edition with your host, Johnny Phillips, on this Monday, June 29th, 2020. Now today I have the privilege to be joined by two gentlemen. One is Dr. Glenn Sunshine. He is the founder and president of Every Square Inch Ministries, as well as, the, as well as a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University. The other gentleman is James, a.k.a. Jim Gavilos. Jim served as an Orthodox priest for 18 years and is currently the CEO of Education Foundation of Palm Beach County. And I will say this, in addition to, be he- in addition to being heavily invested and involved in education and in Christian ministry, these gentlemen both, for everyone out there, they are experts at selling out tickets to their Bible studies. So <laughs> it's uh, something I was able to be a part of. Um, I want to start off this evening just for our audience's sake. Um, it's about sacredness and investigating its relationship with the secular world as well as the sacramental life of the church. And Glenn, I'm going to start with you first uh, with a hypothetical. And that is, you know, I'm at your Bible study one night and or someone's at your Bible study and they raise their hand and they hear you speaking about when they hear you speaking about what is sacred and sacredness. And they ask you a question and the question is, what does it mean when you say that you believe something is sacred? And why is that important in today's society? Um, how would you respond? Well, I, I begin by just sort of noting that, well, I just recently saw a, a, a poll that indicated that over 60% of the American public now does not believe that human life is sacred. Um, the concept of sacredness has, has sort of disappeared from our culture, um, the broader secular culture. And unfortunately, uh, within the Protestant world, and particularly the evangelical world, it's, it, it's virtually disappeared. Um, so when you're, if you're referring to that kind of context, uh, the, the sacred is, is essentially gone. What, what sacred is, um, presumably something like the things that God values, which would be uh, for a Christian human life, uh, but frankly, they'd be hard-pressed. I think most evangelicals would be hard-pressed to identify anything else that would fall into that category. Um, the way I would define the sacred is a little bit different. I would see the sacred as being, well, first of all, again, those things that God values, such as human life, but also the things that connect us to God. And again, that's one of the things that uh, Western culture in general, evangelicals, a lot of Protestants in particular, have a hard time really envisioning, but there are physical objects that um, that uh, can convey grace and that are uh, thing, means by which you can connect to God. Mm-hmm. And sacraments would be one of those that would be obvious, but I think that there are a number of others as well. And unfortunately, like I said, you know, within the evangelical world, reformed world, uh, there isn't as much of an understanding or appreciation or even recognition uh, of things that are sacred, again, beyond maybe human life. Hmm. And, and its importance, if someone says, well, why, why is that even important to begin with? What would be your response? Like, why is it important to have something that's sacred? Well, it, it, the, the reason is that, that if, well, this gets this gets very complicated, really. When you when you start digging down into it, um, you you have to move into a whole lot of philosophical 
levels, but the bottom line here, I suppose, would be that if there are things that God has provided to us that are means to connect to him, mm. um, that that tie together the invisible and the visible world that are our, our nexus between the two, maybe that's the way of describing it, mm. um, then if we miss those or lose sight of them or ignore them or diss them, frankly, uh, then we are at the very least missing a lot of what God has for us and potentially, frankly, um, spurning his gifts, mm. which it seems to me as a Christian is something we very, very much do not want to do. Right. Right. Jim, uh, Jim uh, to add on to that, your thoughts? Yeah, I had this huge smile on my face, Glenn, because um, I said, my gosh, I think he is a, an Orthodox theologian and he doesn't know it yet. Um, because uh, as, I, as you were speaking, you know, to take a step back, John, when, when I first started thinking about the question, um, sacred and its relationship to the secular, you know, there's often this kind of um, juxtaposition or almost uh, uh, an assumed conflict between the sacred and the secular world, and where is that line found? What's sacred and, and you know, what is secular? And as a, a wise old monk once said to me when I asked a question and a different one, he said, I can't give you the right answer to the wrong question. Mm. Um, from an orthodox perspective, We've never divided the world up into sacred and secular. The world is sacred because ultimately it is created by God. And, and I very much appreciate, uh, Glenn, you, you know, your, your, your focus on human life. When we talk about how man has taken the sacred and, you know, sort of completely ignored that, that sacred aspect of it, um, I, I think you know, there's a number of things we can point to that I'm sure we're going to touch on. The ecology, the world, our relationship to the world around us. The, the role of the church, and not, not so much uh, reclaiming the sacred, but revealing the sacred nature of, of, of the created world, leading up to, obviously, our complete disregard for human life. Um, any question on whether it's abortion or capital punishment today, typically focus on who has the right to decide. Is it the mother's right, the state's right, the this right? Nobody else believes that God's right. Life is sacred. It starts with him. So any mm. question on life has to have to really set with the Lord, so I very much appreciated that. Um, I also loved when you were talking about uh, that, that sense of what we in the Orthodox would call the sacramental sense of worship. Um, it's something that I think the modern contemporary church cringes at, uh, or at least doesn't understand. Father Peter Gilquist of the Antiochian Archdiocese wrote a book a few years ago when he himself was a former evangelical, and it was called The Physical Side of Being Spiritual. And it talked about that sacramental sense of, of bringing the sacred into our worship life. And, you know, John, you know from your time in the Orthodox Church, we use the created world around us. We use bread and wine for communion. We use oil for unction. Um, you know, there's all these, you know, we use paint and wood to make icons. All of these little bits of the created world are brought into our worship life, and then worship itself is very physical. Hmm. Um, for a classic example, uh, in the Western world and in America, we, we have the Orthodox Church have adopted the use of pews. You know, we came here to America and looked around and said, well, okay, they all sit down, so, so we'll sit. Hmm. Pews, the late, the late theologian Father Schmemann once said, either the pews go or the liturgy goes, but you can't have both, because one is a denial of the other. Hmm. Liturgy is, by definition, physical. 
because our bodies are physical. Hmm. Um, and that is part of that whole sense of the sacred. The sacred is not relegated to this particular time or this particular area. We have to recapture that sense that all of creation is sacred because it is of God's. It's our misuse of it that has made it secular. Yeah. It's our misuse of our bodies that has made our bodies secular. And what I, I love when you talked about the sacredness of human life, when, when you remove the, the creative energy of the Lord and the Holy Spirit from the created world, then the, the sacred does disappear. Mm. Yeah, now, that's when you have to... That's what you have to speculate. Yeah, if I can jump in at this point, um, one of the things that you just said that I love um, is the idea that um, there is no sacred-secular divide, that all the world is sacred uh, because it is created by God. And I would go further, and I'm sure you'd agree here, that the the world also reveals God. You know, the, the world speaks to us. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and it speaks to us of its creator. Um, so, so there is a sense where everything in the world is sacramental. It's not a sacrament, but it is sacramental okay. in, in the sense that it, it reveals, it speaks to us of who God is. It, the world is imbued with meaning. Mm. And that, again, is something that the modern secular society just really doesn't understand. They don't even have categories for it anymore. And, and oh, you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, and, and John, you're not going to get to say a word tonight because I love this. <laughs> you're making my job easy. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, I can't get the right answer to the wrong question. Modern man has this whole religion versus science uh, issue, which there are times when we Orthodox kind of scratch our heads and go, what, what are you people talking about? We don't get it. Because in the ancient church, the great fathers and monastics were, in fact, scientists, and the great scientists were, in fact, monastics and, and priests. And I right. think of somebody like David the Great, who writes voluminously on the created world, and you know, talks about flora and fauna, and, and, and you know, going to your point, how these things actually, the diversity and yet the unity in the created world, they are revealers to the Lord God. And if we study the created world, if we really look, I, you're exactly correct. I cannot agree more with that. The created world, when we understand what the sacred really means, the created world is a way to reveal the power of God, and it's a way to lead people to God. Right. Yeah. The the um, I don't know if the term is used in the Eastern Church, but in the West, we call that natural theology mm-hmm. historically, and right, right. and that's very very much a part of the Christian tradition that's been completely lost in the West. Um. The, the thing that is, is um, important here for understanding our culture is something that's uh, referred to as the fact-value distinction. Um, the idea here is that things, uh, things are facts when they are empirically verifiable. You know, if, if you can study it scientifically, if you can prove it empirically, then it's a fact. Everything else is a value. And the values are sort of up for grabs. It's whatever you like or don't like is the realm of value. But reality is only found in the world of fact. Mm. And this even shows up in the word science. The word scantia, the Latin word scantia, from which we get science, originally just simply meant a field of knowledge. So theology was a science. It was a field of knowledge with a methodology. It's really all science is. Mm. But when modern science arises, 
they take that word scantia and they they really limit its use just to understanding the natural world and things that are empirically verifiable. So those are the only things that really qualify as a knowledge anymore. Everything else is opinion, it's faith, it's taste, it's whatever. Mm. And the problem with that is it's completely wrong. Mm. There are things that are real that qualify as knowledge that you cannot demonstrate empirically. You know, it is a, it's a huge reduction in our ability to understand and perceive the world and it creates all kinds of false dichotomies like science versus religion that you mentioned and all of these other areas it comes up because of this transformation of what the concept of true knowledge is that shows up then late 18th early 19th century right right and just just to your point there glenn it and to both of your points I can, I can hear your voice and I can hear that you both agree it's incredibly important. This is a remarkable part of this world that God created, that there are things that are sacred, that have a relationship with Him. And why I'm scratching my head right now is why did the world, or at what point did the world, if this is such a great gift, if this is such a natural part of the human experience and our, our lives, why did we say no? Go ahead. Well, Matt. yeah, um, yeah. Glenn a lot of, and Jim. Yeah, there there are a whole bunch of different reasons historically. I'm I'm an early modern historian, and this is sort of a period coming right after the area I specialized in. So I have a you know I've I've done a lot of work with this, but uh, you know a lot of it boils down to a couple of things. First of all. Um, you know, there there are a whole series of things that slam Western European thinking in about the 17th century. Um, recovery of ancient skeptical traditions from Pyrrho, um, you know, all of these other things. And then when science comes along, when modern science begins to develop or when it begins to emerge out of medieval science, um, they begin looking at that and saying, okay, this is the solution to all of our problems of knowledge. Mm. And once they start moving in that direction, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. All the way through the 18th century, they're still talking about natural theology. Okay. But people are always trying to find a way of getting out from under the authority of God. Mm. And you see this happening during the Enlightenment, and then when the 19th century comes along, the big problems intellectually were where did the universe come from, and what's distinctive about humanity. They solved the problem of where the universe comes from by going back to ancient Greek thought where they, the Greeks believed that the universe was eternal. And if the universe is eternal, you don't need a creator. Mm. So that solves one problem. And then the other problem, uh, what's distinctive about humanity, that was solved by Darwin. Answer, nothing much. Mm. And just real, so, real quick, when you say that, why did they go back to Greece? Why did, why did they go back to the Greeks and not Christ? Well, because, like I said, in a lot of ways, they were trying to find a way of, of you know, I would argue fundamentally, they were trying to find a way of escaping from the demands of God. And But along with that, we have to look at the utter failure of the Western Church in so many different ways. Um, you have, um, you know, the wars of religion. Uh, you, you have the splintering of Protestantism into a myriad of different sects. You have all kinds of things going on within Western Christendom that really, frankly, give Christianity a, uh, 
a bad reputation among a lot of people. And then on top of that, you have a growing rationalism culturally. Mm. And the rationalism <laughs> says we can't, you know, we, you know, we can't rely on revelation. Reason is the only source for truth. We need to rely on reason. Those kinds of things. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff that comes together. Mm. That, that's, where, that's where I would jump in because, and as I'm listening to you, I'm fascinated, your, your, your breadth of knowledge is, is astounding. But, um, and I was wondering if we were going to touch on that because without having the expertise in this particular uh, period or epic that you do, from my perspective as an Eastern Orthodox theologian, there are two things that I think post-enlightenment um, brings to the intellectual philosophical table. One of them is humanism, the shift from a God-centered view to a man-centered view. And then you brought up rational, um, rationalism, the sense that everything has to be sort of uh, intellectually understood versus the revealed truth, acceptance, and faith. But I think that shifts to a human-based view of the world rather than God-based is really, really what leads us down the P path of where we are today. You know, we're, we're talking, the three of us here, about revealed truth, about um, ultimate and um, sacred realities the one absolute of the modern man is that there are no absolutes. So, you know, we're talking a language that they won't understand, and I think a lot of that has its roots in that very, very powerful shift to a human-based view of the world rather than a God-based view of the world. Once we take God away from the center, then any concept of the sacred becomes, if not completely eliminated, it certainly becomes up to debate. Mm. Because remember, God is no longer the measure by which all things are seen. Yeah. We are. Yeah. And, and you know, there are, three, there are three of us on this conversation, all of it, all three of us, um, well, at least the two of you, I'd say intelligent people, but I'm here just listening, fascinated. Um, but you know, seriously, we're all followers of Jesus Christ. We're all fairly well-read, fairly educated people, probably on the same page on just about everything. And I guess even amongst the three of us, there'd be some slight nuances in our view of the secret. Mm-hmm. Now think about modern man with his, with his and, and again, you nailed it, about his abhorrence of authority, and one of those authorities is absolute truth. But mm-hmm. a modern man will, will buck anything that smacks of absolute, whether it's authority, knowledge, or fact. Mm-hmm. So you know, when, we, when we start talking about a theocentric, a God-centric view of the world, um, that's going to be absolutely antithetical to everything modern man wants to deal with. Hmm. Glad. Did you want to add anything? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just sort of one irony that I see coming out of all of this. Um, you know, this is in a lot of ways a classic example of Romans one professing to be wise, they became fools. Yeah. And uh, what what I'd like to point out is just sort of the the irrationality of where they end up in the name of developing a rationalist system. So let's let's look at the secular creation myth for a moment. According to the secular creation myth, the universe comes into existence with the Big Bang. We have no idea what came before it. We have no access to whatever came before it because the laws of physics and everything else, and even time itself, begins with the Big Bang. So we have no idea why it happens, but it does happen. At that point, the laws of physics, the laws of science, and everything else come into existence. And then following those immutable laws as a matter of cause and effect, sooner or later galaxies and stars and planets are formed. And around one of those planets, 
um, somehow, again, following these laws of physics and, and cause and effect and so on. Um, on one of those planets, organic compounds are formed. And then even though the first law of biology is that life does not come from non-life, in this case, it does. And those organic compounds spring into life on their own. And from there, following the immutable laws of nature and cause and effect and physics and all that sort of thing, um, which we describe as a process of evolution by random chance, um, which, by the way, is a contradiction. It can't be random chance if it's done by immutable laws of physics and cause and effect and so on, but whatever. Somehow, out of that emerges our brains. Mm. And because of all of this, our brains are actually capable of understanding how the universe works. Mm. Now, that last, uh, uh, aside from all the contradictions on your way there, that last statement is totally illogical and irrational. Why would you assume that your mind as simply an epiphenomenon of brain chemistry is actually capable of understanding the way the universe works? Why does that make sense to anyone? Mm. It's a product of either random chance or simple cause and effect in physics. Mm. I mean, you know, like said, professing to be wise, they became fools. They developed a rational system, this rational explanation of the universe. They've got their own creation myth. Mm. But if you follow through on it, it's not rational. Right, right. And part of, part of my gut tells me, Glenn and Jim, that at least from the millennial perspective... It's about freedom. It's about the fact that when we look at something that's sacred, maybe our freedom is going to be up for grabs and that in order to remain free, I need to remain against or at least avoid any type of sacrament relationship, any type of relationship that has something that is sacred. Can you, can you just explain a little bit or just um, expand about that idea of People might look at an altar, people look at anything sacred, and they first say, ooh, this is, this is going to require me of giving up my freedom. What, what would you say to that person who, who looks at something that's sacred and, and, and has that view? Uh, I'm, I'm going to toss this one over to you first because I feel like I've been talking too much already. Go for it, Jim. No, I, I think you're doing just fine. I, 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 I'd love to hear your responses, but let, okay, I'll start the conversation. So, again, we're starting with some a priori assumptions that, that almost will completely eliminate the possibility of having the right answer. That person who says, you know, I, I think your question was when they see the altar and there's that, that pullback from it. It's a violation. Yeah, it's like a violation of their freedom. Like, you know, uh, the reason why. You know, we don't want necessarily, whether it's a baptism, whether it's the Eucharist, whether it's the altar, whether it's certain prayers, that there's, is, is, is it because of this, well, it's going to perhaps take away some of the freedoms that I have in order to choose what I want to have as my sacred parts of my world. And because these things were, that because these things were of the past, that we now live in modern times and we can replace these things in the past that people use that they, they they call them sacred and we can replace them to what we think is most beneficial that along that kind of train of thought because i do hear a lot of that again from my generation when they approach certain topics 
when it comes in particular to sacraments and the altar and baptism and the Eucharist and the church. That's just something that I've heard and just wanted to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, and I think the issue starts with let's define what the word freedom means. Mm. Um, you know, and I go back to Glenn's one of his earlier comments about modern man's abhorrence to anything that, that has the tinge of authority. And so when you have that, when you have a rational, humanistic based uh, theology, if you will, if, if, I think if that's even possible, if it's kind of an oxymoron of the human-based theology, that being said, you combine that with the natural rebellion of the contemporary millennial, um, and clearly the rejection of anything that, that smacks of authority or, or absolutism. The whole concept, John, of any of religion that has, to be frank, that has any kind of rule and order itself becomes, oh, come on. Um, I think modern man very much wants to make it up on his own. We search for a religion, the contemporary young couple will search for a church that speaks to them. It's a church that they identify. They're not really searching for Jesus Christ. They're not really searching for that historic apostolic expression of Christianity. We're, we're looking for a church that, that um, fits what we think religion should be. Again, subtle difference. It no longer is the church being true to itself. The question is, well, does the church fit with what I think it should be? Mm. And so when you come into a church that has a clearly defined sacramental life and is saying to the modern person, it is through these things, these created things, that we see as imbued with the Holy Spirit of God, it is through them that we can approach, and insofar as we can humanly do this, understand the created God, the modern person looks at us like we're nuts. Mm. Because, number one, they want to make it up as they go along anyway. Number two, there's going to be an all, a near categorical rejection of anything that smacks of ab absolutism. Mm. And, and here's, you know, John, uh, Glenn, I think you, you touched on this uh, on, on another issue, but as we start to the election, I am frequently amused by the intellectual paradoxes that modern man stumbled into when we reject the sacred nature of the created world around us, and we create the sacred versus secular um, antagonism, well, then you have to have an ecological movement. Somebody once said to me 30 years ago, orthodoxy has never needed an ecological movement because we recognize the importance of the created world around us. We don't need to, you know, save the planet, because we know that if we don't have the planet, we can't worship and we can't come to God. Mm -hmm. so, and it, so interestingly modern, enough, by the way, you'll find that in Calvin. Really? Can you elaborate that a little bit? Well, John talks in his commentary on Genesis, he talks about how it is our duty when we, you know, he's, he's talking about farming particularly, but he says, you know, it's our duty to cultivate the land as best we can and to pass it down in at least as good condition and if possible even better condition than we received it to the next generation. Hmm. Interesting. He's talking about ecological responsibility. Mm. And I think it really goes down to the idea that the earth is the Lord's, not ours. Mm. Exactly correct. And that, that, that would be stewardship always, there. Always struck me, and I'm sorry, John, you're trying to get a little bit in your own show. Um, <laughs> something that always struck me is that there are these little signposts for me that were so revealing. And one of those is one of the final acts 
had an Orthodox funeral service. Now here's, here's the final sacrament, if you will, uh, or sacramental act, I should say, uh, of someone's life. We go through baptism, cremation, their marriage, you know, unction for the sick, confession, blah, 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 all these different sacraments. So we're at the very last act. We've gone pretty much through the entire funeral service. And you know, the family has come up and paid, everybody's paid their respects. At this stage, there probably might have been just the immediate family left in the church. And the final act, the priest takes a bit of sand and he kind of pours it over the body. And just as a side note, one of the things I would do is I open up a white handkerchief and I'd put some oil on the side of the cross and I'd throw the sand on the oil. And the sand would adhere to the oil so it looked reasonably presentable. Um, but the point is, you're pouring the sand over the, the deceased and you're, you're saying from Genesis, the earth is the Lord to the fullness thereof. From the dust of the earth will be taken, and unto the dust of the earth will be returned. And just think about what we're doing there. As human life, which, Glenn, you said perfectly in the beginning, is the ultimate expression of the sacred, uh, and, and quite honestly, the ultimate modern objection of the sacred and how cheap human life has become. And as this final act, we're taking some of the created world, the most base material, if you will, dirt, and we're pouring it on this now dead body, saying, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. From the dust of the earth will we take it, and unto the dust of the earth do we return. We are part of this sacred created order. Mm. That we have this categorical, that modern man is categorically rejected. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, go, no, I was going to say, Glenn, um, it, it's a great point. I am, um, and 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 just Glenn, just you want to add anything to when Jim talked about to the millennial, and not just millennial. I guess you can say anyone really in the Western world who says, when I see a sacrament, I see kind of a violation, perhaps of my freedom, and I want to be, I want to be able to determine what I think should be sacred and what should not be sacred. Things of the past, the sacraments represent the past. This is a new type of life. This is you know, the brave new world, sacraments could, should change just like we change. What, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would say that there are, two, uh, there are two different directions to go here. One of them is back to the fact-value distinction. Hmm. You know, the idea that anything that is not empirically verifiable, and sacraments are not, is a matter of opinion, and therefore you have every right to choose what you want to. Okay. But what if the fact-value distinction is wrong? What if, there are, what if there is something objective that goes on in sacraments? Then you don't really have the right to make them up on your own. Hmm. Um, you know, so, so if you understand that, hmm. um, that kind of undermines the whole argument. And then along with that, there's uh, what Jim said. You have to define what you mean by freedom. What is freedom? You know, when you look at... Um, you know, our word freedom really encompasses two earlier words, uh, liberty and license. The difference between the two is that, and again, we're, we're dealing with 18th century language here. Uh, the difference between the two is that liberty in its earliest sense meant you have the freedom to act within boundaries. Hmm. You know, they, that... There are certain things that you cannot do that are, you know, immoral or illegal or whatever. But you have a wide range of other options that you're free to choose from. Mm. And all those choices are good. They're, you know, they're all legitimate. They're all good. 
Um, by the 18th century, liberty means a little bit more than that. It's the freedom to pursue uh, the ancient Greek word is eudaimonia, a, a good life, a life well lived, a life of virtue. Mm. Okay, so that's what liberty is. License, on the other hand, is freedom from restraint. What it means is nobody can tell me what to do. Mm. Okay, and that's where we get words like licentious, another old-fashioned word, but it means living without any kind of external restraint. So it's not not accepting them. Now, the problem is with the fact-value distinction, once again, and with a number of other changes in society, we have lost the concept of virtue. We, you know, we have gotten this idea that morality is relative, that, you know, that there is no absolute good or evil or anything like that, 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 um, you know, morality is situational and relative, that's it. And if you don't have virtue, you can't have liberty. Because liberty, in the 18th century sense of the word, means living in accordance with virtue. Mm. Since we've lost the concept of virtue, we lose liberty, and all that is left to us is license. Mm. So freedom now, rather than being a positive definition, freedom for something good, it becomes freedom from something, freedom from restraint. Mm. And if that's your concept of freedom, then Orthodox Christianity is not freedom. Mm, got it. But if your concept of freedom is liberty, is the original idea, you know, nobody in the 18th century argued we had that we had a, a natural right to license. They mm. all argued we had a natural right to liberty, though, because liberty is acting within the boundaries that are set by God, by natural law, all of these kinds of things. Yeah. And all of it is good and all of it is positive, but you have to live within the structure. Yeah. And you've got to pursue virtue. Right, right. And Jim- I, would, I would add, and, and Glenn, again, you know, I, I thoroughly loving, as, as you talk, um, the concept of freedom from, freedom of, or freedom for. Um, there's a contemporary theologian, uh, Christos Yanaras, who's... Uh, most commonly read book is called The Freedom of Morality. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as, as, just as we're having this discussion, modern man looks at the moral teachings of the church as a restrictive code. The church is telling me a bunch of things that I can't do. And Yanaras raises the issue, morality is actually the ultimate freedom. And so let, let's just play around with this, um, this concept in the modern world, and, and let's talk about sexual ethics. I want to be free to do whatever I want, free of any moral code, so I'm going to go out and sleep with anything I want, anyone I want, male, female, multiple partners, doesn't matter, because I'm free. Which, of course, now I better go have an AIDS test uh, on a monthly basis. Um, if I'm a married man and I'm doing these things, you know, I'm going to destroy my family and possibly my career, etc., etc., etc. Yanadas would ask the question, how free are you? Mm-hmm. Now, someone who follows the biblical moral code of sexual ethic, let's talk about that person's freedom. The person who is committed to a chaste lifestyle or, or monogamy and, and fidelity within the marriage, that person's not worried about getting disease. That person's not worried about getting caught. That person's not worried about being outed. Um, there's this ultimate freedom in morality. And I think that's, again, one of those distinctions that modern man hasn't quite figured out. Morality isn't a restraining code. 
that ultimately gives us the freedom that we really want because when we think we're free, and again, you know, Glenn, you've been quoting St. Paul all night long, we think we're free, it promises freedom, but it, it brings us enslavement. It brings us enslavement to the devil, enslavement to sin, mm. under the guise of freedom. Right. Right. And, and this is echoing uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, where he talks about, you know, you're, you're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to God. Mm. It's one or the other. You know, you've got to live within somebody's rules, within somebody's kingdom. And uh, if you opt for a license, you know, you, you are a slave to sin. But if you opt for freedom, you're, you're Christ's a bondservant, slave, whatever term you want to use here. But that's really the root of true freedom. And, and, and on that point of looking towards Christ as bringing us true freedom, we're going to move into the sacraments. And uh, Jim, we'll start with you first. How do the sacraments help us in, let's say, being free and having a certain amount of freedom and being in a relationship with Christ? What role do the sacraments play um, in this experience? The sacraments are signposts. They're, they're revelatory signposts. Um, is there an objective reality to baptism? We as Orthodox would say, yes, there is. But it's still a signpost. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a revealing signpost that in baptism, and again, remember, I'm Eastern Orthodox, so I don't get into this whole we're being forgiven of original sin because we just don't go down that path. You don't find that in the Orthodox concept of baptism. It's being united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a physical sign. The physical sign being we're going to be submerged in the water, the primordial substance, as a sign of our, our being united to the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, chrismation, that seal of the Holy Spirit, there's a physical sign being attached the message there is that we're supposed to then become spirit bearers. We now have a personal, we're supposed to always have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. The sacrament of marriage, it's more than just a 15-minute ceremony where when we're done, I get to kiss my bride and everybody applauds. It is a revelation of what the true relationship between man and woman is supposed to be, which if Paul has anything to say in Ephesians 5, that's based on our relationship to God, hmm. a relationship of mutual love and respect, and, and dare I say this word that people hate, submission. Hmm. Um, so the sacraments, there's an objective reality where we are spiritually blessed in them, but simultaneously it's a revelation of what these signposts in life truly are supposed to be. And think about, as you go through the spectrum of sacraments, from baptism all the way to, I would say, the funeral service, which... By the way, the funeral is not typically considered one of the sacraments of the church, but as part of our sacramental life. The whole spectrum of human life is revealed as to what it should be, from mm -hmm. being united to Christ, to dying and being with him in the end, and returning to the dust of the earth. The whole spectrum of human life, of birth, sickness, love, marriage, death, is all brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, we've been using this word sacramental. Let, let's not forget the root, sacred. It, it's that re the revealing of the divine presence. Mm -hmm. And so 
how does the sacramental life help us, you know, understand these things? Because when the sacraments are properly understood as these revealing signposts, they give us a, you get a much better sense of what marriage is supposed to be by going to an Orthodox wedding than you do read, reading the latest book on Oprah's book club list. Hmm. Um, you get a much better sense of, of the true theology of sickness uh, by going to the service of unction than you do by reading the latest bestseller at Barnes & Noble. Um, that's why I think these sacraments are so critical for the modern man. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to add to that um, a couple of things, particularly from the Reformed perspective, but not entirely. Uh, first of all, the Latin sacramentum is usually a translation, of course, of the Greek mysterion. Um, yeah. Mysterion is something that is hidden that has been revealed. And your description of the way the sacraments work, every one of them is revealing something deeper and truer about life, mm. about what life really is. And so, again, that, that's this idea of signpost. Augustine but described the sacrament as a visible promise. Mm. You have a, a promise of God that is made tangible in a visible way with physical objects. Mm. And so, you know, again, all of this is the same thing. Calvin talks a great deal about this sacrament. The odd thing is that with, within the Protestant world, particularly evangelicalism, but if, well, let's go back to the Reformation. In the Reformation, they argued that what they were doing was a reform of word and sacrament. It, you know, we, we look back at Protestantism today, we think about it almost entirely in terms of the idea of justification by faith and things like that, um, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, all of those, those kinds of things, but we ignore completely the sacramental side that all the reformers had. Mm. They all emphasized sacrament, and we've lost that in the West, but largely, I would argue once again, we're back to the fact-value distinction. The idea is that a physical object can't really convey spiritual grace, because spiritual grace is part of this value system. Physical objects are empirical. Mm. So we've got this, this, that same dichotomy that exists in our minds in all these other areas also kills sacramental theology. Mm. You, you are so correct. You know, I, I often said as a, as a, in my days as a clergyman, we live on Monday through Saturday as if we were bodies that didn't have a soul, and then we come to church on Sunday and we pretend that we're a soul that doesn't have a body. Because we've never understood that it's, it's we need the physical to lead us to the... I'm not going to say lead us, because the physical and the spiritual, that's, that's what it means to be human, to be physical and spiritual. And both of those need to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one sacrament that we haven't really touched on yet, when you talk about the very identity, and, and I love, uh, Glenn, you're, you're, you're bringing Augustine in and his definition of sacrament... You know, you know, my use of the word signpost, when we talk about the sacrament of sacraments, which is the Eucharist, the very identity of the Church, again, modern man, with his kind of humanistic base, rational thought, worship has largely become um, an intellectual exercise. Yes, there's the emotionality, there is prayer, obviously, and singing, but really the basis of worship is to go hear a dynamic sermon. Um, as Especially in Protestantism, evangelicalism. And, and, and I would even say, and I say this respectfully to my Protestant brethren, um, it, it, I'm, I'm, John, I'm going to get you into trouble here. Um, it becomes, in some places, a personality cult. 
the one who preaches better and more charismatic has a larger following. Yep. You know, not, not, every, not every minister has a TV show. The ones who are funny and charming and entertaining, you know, it, it becomes largely a cult of personality, which, and these are godly men, don't mishear me, but it's man-based. It's not God-based. It's, it's our human perception of, oh, she or he is charismatic. She or he is a dynamic speaker. She or he is intellectual. That's the one I want to go here versus I'm going to church on Sunday to be united to the Holy Church of God. And I think in our Orthodox view of worship as Eucharistic-centered, you know, communion, I, I used to say this all the time, it's not something you do, it's not something you take, it's not even something you receive. The Eucharist is the very manifestation of what the Church is. The whole body of Christ, rich and poor, black and white, male and female, old and young, we all stand around the body and blood of Christ, remembering what he said on the night he died, that, you know, take this, take it, break it, do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come again. That's exactly what the church is. It's that, that singular moment, John, you said in Bible studies, you're being with the all the time. The Eucharist is taking that, that moment of the Last Supper, also looking forward to, looking backwards, obviously, then looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb from the book of Revelation. We're taking the past and the future, and we're collapsing it into the present. Hmm. That's what the church is, and that's what worship is supposed to be. Should it you know, be intellectually stimulating? Yeah. Uh, and, and Glenn, I will share this with you. You know, as I'm you know, strong on the Eucharistic theology and blah, blah, blah. The sad fact is, we Orthodox have forgotten that there is a rational part of worship, which is why, quite honestly, most Orthodox priests are pretty lousy creatures because they don't put a lot of emphasis in it. And, and to our shame and to our discredit, that we have never had the conflict between the altar or the pulpit, and I've kind of heard that in the evangelical world, what's more important, the altar or the pulpit? And again, we Orthodox are kind of scratching our heads going, I'm not getting this this conflict, there is no conflict. You can't have one without the other. Clearly, worship is Eucharistic-centered, but clearly the worship is also the, the dynamic proclamation of the living gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and in full disclosure here, we in the Orthodox Church have really fallen short of that part of the equation. It's just not emphasized. It's not emphasized. We had a one-semester class in preaching in seminary. That was in seven years, by the way. Seven years, you had a one-semester class in preaching. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, and for my part, I'll be the first one to tell you that we have completely dropped the ball in the evangelical world, and even in most of the Reformed world, we've completely dropped the ball on the sacramental side of things. You know, I, I actually was ordained... Um, in a, through our church uh, a few months back. And when I have conducted a Eucharistic service, what I do frequently is I'll, I'll, I'll just stop, stop and I'll say, look, you know, we are way, way too casual in terms of our approach to this thing. You know, you, you have to understand, for over a thousand years, this was universally the center for Christian worship. It wasn't the sermon. That only showed up about 500 years ago. But, you know, for that being really central. For over a thousand years, this was the center of Christian worship. And as you said, you know, it is, you know, Jesus said, um, you know, it's a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. But Jesus also said, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the kingdom. 
So this is looking ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I talk about that too. It, you know, the the when you read Paul and he talks about this as participation in the body and blood of Christ, I don't know what that means. I don't think we need to define it. But what this means is that we are, the word is actually koinonia in Greek, we are having fellowship with Jesus' body and blood. But First Corinthians also talks about the church being the body of Christ. And if you read the Didache, the, the focus of that seems to be the church is, as you say, the church is united in the Eucharist. The, you know, as the, these, the, the grains were come from many hills, so may we be gathered together in, in your kingdom, Lord. I mean, that's the prayer of the Didache. Oh, I, I, I have to tell you that is one of my favorite parts of the Didache, is that prayer, that, that powerful Eucharistic prayer. It is. You're doing fine. Keep going. Oh, it, 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 I, I agree with you. It's amazing. You know, but this operates on so many different levels, so many different dimensions. And we come in and say, oh gosh, it's the first Sunday. I guess we're having communion. We're going to get out a little late today. What mm. is wrong with us? Mm. Mm. I have to share with you, when I was a priest in San Diego, there was a young man who had converted to Orthodoxy and eventually himself became a priest. He attended, and if you, you watch a lot of religious on TV, you'll know the name Dr. David Jeremiah. And El Cajon, California, he was a member of Dr. Jeremiah's church. And as you just pointed out, you know, kind of first Sunday of the month was, was communion, or was Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, I think they called it. And, and you know, Paul, then his name was Carl, he, he took the name Paul when he was murdered, imprisoned. But, but Carl got to the point with Dr. Jeremiah and basically said, look, everything I'm reading in Scripture says, this is really, really important, and we're doing it twice a year. I think we need to be doing it, you know, Dr. Jeremiah looked at him like he was crazy. Um, it's, it's that kind of, when you actually read the text and see how important it was to the early church, and then you look at the Didache, the, 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 the Apostles, and that incredibly powerful Eucharistic prayer, which so affected me as a priest, I would look at that loaf of bread that we were about to use for Eucharist, and I would think about all the grains of wheat that came together to make that bread, and I'd look at the congregation as all of us are brought here to, to become the church. And this bread, this Eucharist, becomes a revealing signpost of the church itself. It becomes sacramental. It becomes sacred. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's overpowering in, in, its, in its expression of what we're supposed to be. It, it's a great definition of the sacred. Uh, of here's this physical thing, this loaf of bread, that becomes a perfect image for the church. Hmm. No, too. That's well said, Jim. And you know, to wrap things up, um, when we look at again the sacraments, what is sacred, secular culture? Where do we, gentlemen? Where do we go from here? We have COVID nineteen. We have what seems to be a very strident secular culture rising, continuing to rise. Um, where do we go from here? What are the signs of hope? What are the signs of worry? Um, what do you? Where do you see the church? Um, wh wh what are your What are your thoughts on on where we are today? Um, I guess we can start with either either one of you. Um, all right, I'll, I'll 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 jump in on this one first. Um, 
I think that, you know, speaking as an evangelical Protestant, I think evangelicalism is imploding. Um, I think in general, people who are small O Orthodox Christians are going to find themselves under increasing fire culturally and probably legally as well. And I have a feeling that where we're going to need to end up is similar to churches that you see in many other parts of the world where they become smaller. Um, they're not focused on church buildings or property. They become uh, house churches, things like that. They get, again, much smaller um, and, frankly, more agile uh, at that point. And I think that that may end up proving to be a very healthy thing. We're, we may end up being a lot like, say, the church in China or something like that. Uh, I have a feeling that's where we're going. But here's the trick. The church in the Roman Empire was persecuted far more severely than anything I can anticipate happening here. They aren't going to be rolling people in pitch and lighting them on fire to light the way into public gardens. That's not going to happen. The, the early church was persecuted much more severely than we are. But because they lived lives of extravagant faithfulness, because they reached out and served their neighbors, regardless of whether they were Christians or not, they fed the, uh, the poor, they tended to the sick, they did all the things that, that Jesus did. They stayed faithful in the midst of that, despite all the opposition. It took 300 years, but eventually the Roman Empire caved. Hmm. We tend to get upset about one election cycle. We need to think long-term lives of extravagant faithfulness, doing what Jesus called us to do. Like I said, in terms of churches themselves, I suspect we're probably going to have to get, get smaller. We're probably going to lose property. There are all kinds of things that I think are negative that are going to happen. But it doesn't really matter because the church isn't the building. Mm. Jim? Well, <laughs> I wish I had uh, some way to disagree with you, but I really can't. I agree with you. I think um, the apostolic sacramental churches, i.e. Catholicism, the Episcopalian, you know, high reformed, um, and obviously the Eastern Orthodox, we're in the midst of an identity crisis. We, it's not that we don't know who we are, we've forgotten who we are. And, and I, my concern is that in our wrestling with our identity, which is itself gets to the heart of your question tonight about being sacred, in this obsession we have with becoming relevant, we have made ourselves absolutely irrelevant. And I agree with you. Um, in the Orthodox world, you're going to have, as you pointed out, during the home church, you know, people kind of retreating. The one thing that will always sustain Orthodoxy, believe it or not, from my perspective, is, is, is always monasticism. Um, there might be just one crazed hermit monk living in a cave somewhere who still has that vision of the church as the body of Christ on earth, as, as the sacramental presence of God in this increasingly dark world, um, that monk or nun is the church. You know, we're not majority rule. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned when I see our, as I said, our slide towards becoming relevant and becoming cool and hip. And, you know, we think we're going to attract the youth by, I don't know, using the modern trappings of, of their world their world is a world that has rejected God. And, and so it's, it's not going to work. 
um, it's just not going to work. And I think um, the church has to really wrestle with that identity and become true to our identity. And, and the paradox you know, is, the paradox works in both directions. As I said, by trying to be relevant, we become irrelevant. I think when we become true to our identity as the manifestation of the sacred presence of God on earth, we're going to find our churches full because I actually believe people are looking for this. You know, Glenn, you've quoted Augustine a few times. My favorite Augustine quote is, there is that space of man, there is that space of the heart of man that is restless until it rests in God. I think there is in man a genuine search for something that is real, authentic, eternal, and lasting. And I think that's part of why modern man is so intellectually frustrated and curious, because our, our do-what-you-want theology, our smorgasbord Christianity, um, our, our make-up-your-own-morality as it goes along, clearly is not filling the need that modern man has. Mm. And I think sooner or later, the Christian church is going to reach back into its roots and go, there's another option for people. We kind of looked at it yet. No, it's great. Anything add to add, Glenn? Or... Um, yeah, just uh, one, one additional thought from another Orthodox thinker, Rod Breyer, um, wrote a book a few years ago called The Benedict Option. And while I think there are a lot of things that, you know, we can quibble about in there, the core idea that he has is that, you know, we may need like a new monasticism for the church to survive, something along those lines. And the way I would put it, as someone who's not from a church with monastic tradition, is that values are formed in community. And what we need are intentional communities hmm. to form values for ourselves and for the next generation. And that may look like any number of different things, but we've got to be thinking in those terms. Hmm. Well, well said, Glenn. Thank you again. Thank you, Jim, for joining me tonight. Um, for this interview edition on Young News Podcast. I will be loading this thing up, working on the audio, all that good stuff. And one day, hopefully, we can all be in the same room with a nice audience in front of us. Uh, one day, one day. But for now, this is fantastic. Uh, one of the silver linings, I guess, in all this COVID-19 stuff. And I appreciate the two of you joining me tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. And I, Glenn, Glenn, if you and I don't get to work together on this side of the kingdom, I look forward to meeting you in the kingdom. But boy, if you were down in both your own Florida, I'd be in your church every Sunday, my friend. I, I could listen to you forever. So you may well, see a, a you may see a Greek theologian standing in the back of your church one of these days. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, meeting you too, Jim. And I hope we will have a chance to cross paths in this life, anyway. Uh, and not, as you say, in the next.